Welcome to the Inner Green Deal podcast. Can we expect a revolution from the young? In this first episode, I'm talking to Matthew Pye, author, philosophy teacher, and founder of a number of climate action initiatives. I asked Matthew about the role of the young and how their impact is evolving. This is a special episode, not just because it is the first in a new series, but because Matthew so clearly describes the benefits of the inner dimension of climate action, why it pays to go beyond the rhetoric, and why uncovering the truth, not just the facts, but what we deep down feel to be right and truthful, is ultimately what makes a difference. It gives us the drive and the courage to confront and change. So be curious as Matthew shares this vision and kicks off the Inner Green Deal podcast. My name is Jeroen Jans, and thank you for joining us. So welcome, Matthew. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. (laughs) Nice to be here. So Matthew, you work at the European School, and also in your free time, you work with teenagers and students. And uh, so I'm really curious, what is your inspiration to work with young people? Well, um, my first inspiration is philosophy. That's my job. I'm a Mm -hmm. philosophy teacher. And um, that subject asks these fantastic questions. You strip off the surface of life. You get down to the roots. You you ask deep questions of yourself, of society, etc. And to do that with young people who are asking those questions They're in the twilight zone between childhood and adulthood. They don't tolerate fluff. They want to really get to uh, the bottom of things. Uh, that's a great job to have. I feel really privileged to have that, uh, especially in a European school with that European setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that gets me out of bed. And um, I've been doing that here for 13 years. And uh, in the last eight, nine, 10 years of that, mm-hmm. um, that project has developed into an environmental thing. So those questions mm. about meaning, identity, and so on have kind of opened up into questions about ecology and seeing beyond the source of things in terms of society or politics or consumption, etc. So, and, and how do you, you talked about the climate. So how do you see the young um, that, uh, that you meet in school and other places, how do you see them responding to the current situation? Well, it's indisputable really that uh, students are suffering from uh, a lot of eco-anxiety, mm. not all, of course, mm-hmm. um, but many do. It's kind of a background noise to their life. Um, but what happens when they really see what's happening, you can see this in Greta herself, Greta Thunberg, mm-hmm. that you don't know what to do with that anxiety because you don't have a place to put it because it's not recognized, like in terms of when you see how deep the stress marks go and how big the catastrophe is and how uh, close it is it's not recognized by the system so let, i mean that's not recognized by the system out there in the world but it's also not recognized by schools mm. because if you want to be ecological in school that generally means doing more recycling or plastics mm. so then you think well that's not enough like and so then there's this dissonance so Part of the ecological anxiety uh, for us as education, uh, educationalists, as teachers and so on, is to recognize and deal with that gap. So we do have, we had a well-being survey in school, which I think you're part of. (laughs) And um, 
in that survey, um, after tests, ecology was the second thing which came up as the thing which caused the most anxiety. Uh, homeworks were third. So there, there is a lot of understanding out there by young people, and it's often not uh, matched by the reflect the, by the understanding of adults, mm. um, which is shocking to them, you know. Mm. Yeah. How do you see uh, the role of students then uh, as they respond now, perhaps in the past, because, you know, mm. philosophy teacher, I'm sure you, <laughs> you've looked at that. Um, how do you mm. see this evolving? You're right. In terms of a historical survey, uh, children have often had uh, different identities, if you like, before Rousseau, for example. They were kind of naughty. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they're not naughty now, are they? Um, and <laughs> after Rousseau, um, there's this kind of a romanticization of childhood and, and so on. And then in the Industrial Revolution, they became kind of economically interesting. So education reflected that and we made them numerate and literate and so on. So now we have all three sort of, you know, I think uh, where we are now. And I think if you if you look at childhood now, um, I think there's been, I think everybody could really say just with common sense, there's been an invasion of childhood by the commercial world, mm. you know, um, for teenagers I remember if I look now at music videos or something that would have been considered pornographic 20 years ago or you know I, and I'm not being old footy-duddy now or you know but there, I think there has been inv an invasion of childhood mm -hmm. by um, especially through social media and and electronic uh, things like that so in a way children have become adults much faster mm. Um and that's, if you go back to what I said about e ecological anxiety, in a way that's part of it, that the role of young people now, they're in a very difficult position because if they have an adult understanding of what's going to happen. Right. It raises questions about the adult world and politics and mm. um, business and so on. But they don't have any voice or any leverage to do anything about it. So we've kind of invaded their space, not just with the carbon budget, mm -hmm. but with commercial interests and so i think as in terms of being a teacher and being uh, in education i see my role as providing them with a way of first of all getting a clear picture of mm -hmm. what the reality is and then giving them some tools to make autonomous responses to it that are constructive so yeah i think it's a tough time to be a child I, if i think back to my teenage years i didn't have any of these mm -hmm. complications you know i was like yeah. I was eating sweets and listening to music and yeah. like that. <laughs> and, and I wonder, that's an interesting point you're making. And I wonder whether to a certain extent that explains the the strong other reaction that we haven't talked about is seeing them on the streets, mm. seeing them being angry, mm. uh, upset, protesting, uh, not going to school. And I, say, and I wonder whether that's kind of the flip side of what you're just talking about. Mm. Yeah, I've been doing this for, um, like I say, nine, ten years. And at the beginning, it was very difficult to talk about system change and systems collapses mm -hmm. because it was so off the radar for anybody. Right. And so it was kind of really awkward as a teacher and I had to constantly manage parental reactions, the, the management in my school, their reactions, um, because we were saying something that was so dissonant it was as if we'd watched some whacked out video on YouTube and like, well, what are you doing to these children? You know, like, mm -hmm. no, but, but now because of Greta, this is the great thing about Greta, she has changed the vocabulary. So she has made it possible to talk about catastrophe and collapse mm -hmm. and anger. And that's relevant. 
Mm. So in fact, the first video we did in my uh, climate academy was it's time to get angry about climate change. Mm. And it was just one student from each section of the school, a Portuguese, a, a Dutch, in their own language saying, I'm angry about climate change. Mm -hmm. that, and that was the video. It was just two minutes, but they faced the camera and said, I'm angry. Mm -hmm. But at the time, that was kind of a slightly weird video. And it, today it would just seem like a normal kind of creator video. But um, you're right. I, I, mm -hmm. I agree that it's a funny space to live in. But I think the greater effect has made it much more... Um, is normalized it in a way for a student so it feels yeah. better yeah so it's in the open they they recognize it now they're being taken serious which i think is really a big step forward now could you see it uh going to a level where it may actually spin out of control right so you're saying you're supporting them and voicing their angriness which which i fully understand mm. but it, it might go too far because they don't have the same kind of live experience and appreciation perhaps mm. for structure. Yeah, sure. And so, you know, are we looking to, from evolution to revolution, really? Mm. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think the first thing to say is that it has to be a revolution. If you look at the science data, mm. there's no time for evolution. Right. Um, we've had 30 years of small individual actions. We've had 30 years of sort of gradual reforms, etc., and there's no time left. So the, the fundamental answer is that it has to be a social revolution now at every level because otherwise uh, ecology will take over and we will have a revolution which is chaotic because nature will make it chaotic mm. because it would just be a collapse of all the systems. So now I agree that for a child, for a young person, that's very difficult to manage um, that kind of thinking. So this is one of the kind of twilight zones about working with young people where mm. how far do you show them the truth? How far do you show how imminent these tipping points are in the science? And that takes a lot of um, attention. Mm. So the groups I've worked with have always been quite small groups mm -hmm. of 10 or 12 because you have to manage all these sorts of um, things. And at the end of the day, I think it comes down to the science that if you give them a rock solid basis for the science and you show them the, the CO2 graphs, the Keeling curve, um, and you keep them safely within the scientific models, that gives them a sense of uh, like proportion and perspective mm. where you don't undermine the severity of it, but you also don't allow them to fall into kind of catastrophism and like, you know, it's all finished and so on. So mm. I think that's the, the thing which holds it. But of course, we live in times now like Black Lives Matter and that sort of, you know, we live in times where there is such turbulence um, because it's n these systemic problems have not been dealt with before. Mm. So we're heading into social tipping points, yeah. whether we like it or not. Um, so that's, again, going back to what I said about autonomy, giving children this tools to think for themselves and take these kind of stable autonomous responses as much as you can as a 17 year old but mm -hmm. don't underestimate them you know these no. you, they are capable well clearly i think we've seen that in the news <laughs> you mentioned greta and the power of one um if we were to take a step back and look at what's happening how would you assess the impact the young have been having on this debate mm -hmm. and and from that point what kind of role do you actually see if you feel that we need to do more as a society, how could you see how, first of all, do you assess the current impact of the young? And second, how do you see that evolve? Mm. Well, the greater effect 
has been remarkable. Mm. Um, so that's opened a space, for example, the Green Deal. I don't think that would have been possible. Mm. Um, it was inconceivable two years ago. But I think the other danger that we have now in terms of the, trying to define the role of the young people is that they will naturally take it on themselves. And I think one of the things we have to avoid is giving young people the burden of having these individual responses. So, mm. of course, it's great that you're vegan or it's great that you you fly less or um, whatever. Those are all, of course, fantastic, beautiful responses to life and the problem. But, of course, it's easy to amplify those things and to take the burden of saving the planet onto your own shoulders. Mm. And it's ineffective. I mean, the COVID crisis shows that even when you just slam down on individual consumption, the structure of our embedded emissions in the structures of our life um, show that you, individual actions have no tra not enough traction. So I think the role of the young people now is simply to demand change at a systemic level. Mm. And the only way I think that you can achieve systemic change is through laws. Laws are like the binding fabric of a society. Just like Martin Luther King protested, he, he didn't protest for kind of the odd cafe to be a bit more, you know, welcoming for black people. He demanded <laughs> laws yes. at a system level, at a national level, all the way through. And I think that's the focus that's missing in the current uh, strike movement. That, okay, we're now on the streets, we're now asking for things, but we're not asking for a simple systemic change through law. Mm -hmm. Yes, a very good point. Thank you for that. Um, I mean, of course, we now have the uh, European Green Deal and there will be a legal framework. But, you know, what is it then they can ask for specifically? You know, you talk about the law. What kind of law are you looking for? And what kind of, yeah, what is it that they need? Yeah. Well, there has to be a, a central law, a hub, for all laws about climate that are based on science. Mm. And the science is clear. It has been clear for a long time that there's a carbon budget remaining and that carbon budget has to be divided if you know we all share one atmosphere we're all equal under the sky it's only fair that that budget that remaining carbon budget is divided per capita now when you take that per capita um, uh, number and then allocate it to each individual nation mm -hmm. you end up with a fair amount <clears throat> for each nation to reduce its emissions Mm -hmm. So the law has to be science-based, has to be governed by this carbon budget, and it has to be divided fairly. So the national law should be a per capita number. And our project, in fact, uh, <laughs> has the number for each nation. So Belgium, for example, must cut its emissions by 14% per year starting from now. That's what it turns out. That's what it translates into. Mm. So that's the central law. And then around that central law, that central binding commitment, you then have all the subsidiary laws, which make sure that that 14% is happening. Mm -hmm. Our climate academy, that's our central project, in fact, to, to take the students away from this kind of self-negation or this self, um, you know, like it's my job to save the world. And put it on the shoulders of things like the Green Deal. Mm -hmm. Right. So so what you're saying is um, it would be helpful for young to continue, of course, to put pressure on on governments uh, to protest, to make it clear um, that politicians need to take responsibility. But what you're saying is you would want them to be more specific 
in their demands rather than just to, you know, um, call for a bit more recycling, a little bit less flying. We would like them to be more specific about how much they should reduce and how fast. Is that is yeah. that a good summary? Exactly, yeah. Very good. Um, because until you have that objective measure mm-hmm. of where you're up to, so for Belgium, 14%, you don't know if what you're doing is enough. And it's quite easy to feel ecological. I mean, I guess if you ask most people what's the most ecological country in the world, they might say Norway, because it's like quite pretty and <laughs> they've got lots of electric cars or something. But Norway's got a huge carbon footprint. I mean... Mm-hmm. A, a, an ecological country would be an, a developing nation. <clears throat> um, so, because their carbon footprint is is much lower. So, yeah, this is a, this would be like a standard measure for all nations to just um, to indicate where they're up to. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of absurd that you go to the Economist, and in the Economist you have all this data. You know, the the, the gold price of gold, Brent crude, mm-hmm. etc. But we don't have one for the fundamental uh, barometer of life on Earth. Mm-hmm. We don't have what do we need globally for this carbon budget and for each nation. Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, now, just to understand a little bit better, when you say 14% for Belgium, how, how does that compare to their current ambitions or the current plans? Or uh? Yeah, so no country... Uh, issues its promises on this basis. They just do it on um, a political kind of convenience. Um, mm. So they would make their targets relative to the year 1990, and they say, we can make our emissions reductions by this year in the future. So there's almost no point of comparison with, you, it's, it's almost impossible to compare um, what they're currently promising mm-hmm. and what needs to happen. The way in which you could measure uh, the current commitments globally, you could say as a broad summary that we're on course for about four degrees C by the end of the century. Right. And four degrees C in a human being is called hyperparexia, and that's almost instant death. You know, as a biological system, mm-hmm. you can't tolerate that. Even two degrees, you feel like you have a, a bad flu, you stay in bed. So that's where we're up to. If you add up all the commitments, we're still on track for four degrees, and that's not acceptable. So um, this by doing it per capita, by doing it per nation, mm-hmm. you get a kind of reasonable sense of where things are up to. And Belgium is way behind. And in fact, most nations in Europe are still not decreasing their overall emissions. I mean, right, which yeah, is incredible, which is amazing. We're still yeah. going up. I mean, COVID may change that, but still, we're only accelerating. Mm-hmm. But we don't know that. And people on the streets may see solar panels and like, ooh, but. Until you have this fixed, clear number to measure it by, mm-hmm. it's easy to get the impression that we're decelerating or that we're putting the brakes on. Right. We're, we're not. Mm-hmm. Well, um, if, if I were to just to understand that a bit better, so when you say we actually need to decrease emissions by 14% in Belgium, yeah. and w- what would be your the storyline that you would present to children, for instance, in school? Mm. Like, what is required? You know, what does a world look like where we cut emissions by 14%. Could you describe that? Yeah. Well, let's take the example of transport. Mm-hmm. And let's imagine that transport was 14% of uh, our uh, Belgium's emissions. Mm-hmm. That would mean that by in one year, the whole transport sector would have to be carbon neutral. That's the size of it. Mm-hmm. And that's not f- what, a million miles away from what it is. Mm-hmm. So then the next year you have to do it again, but this time with another sector. 
Hmm. So that's the size of the change that we're looking at. Now, of course, the transport industry is not going to be very happy if they're picked out first. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, and then nobody is. So then yeah. you take, you say, okay, let's have 10 of you in a room. Mm-hmm. Between the 10 of you, you've got to do it mm-hmm. in 10 years. Yeah. So get on with it. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of way in which it looks. Um, that's the, the power of having this number for any one country. It kind of gives them a, a, a visualization, if you like, of, mm-hmm. of what it actually looks like. And, and when you discuss this with uh, young people, how do you respond and what kind of perspective do they have? What kind of life would they be leading and how appealing is that to them? I think <clears throat> I think young people are very willing to give up stuff. I think like my children, they go on scout camps in you know, kind of this Belgian ritual. You know, the two weeks in July, your children mm-hmm. disappear in a field. Yeah. Um, they love it. I, I go and pick them up and I'm like, well, okay, you survived. You know, but they love it. They don't, mm. and I and I think um, it's the adults that are not prepared to give up their comforts and their. So actually, they're quite prepared to see the world in a different shape. And what they find stressful is the fact that they don't see adults willing to like just face reality. That's the thing that mm-hmm. really makes them stressed. Not mm-hmm. the idea that they would have to live, you know, a more simple life. Mm-hmm. And and I, I wonder, you know, from an internal perspective. What is it that they would need, you know, to to transition? You know, you talk about philosophy, um, perhaps other practices. What do you think is helpful for them as we transition as a society and and, and for the young mm. in particular? Well, again, I'm going to sort of uh, pick you up on the fact that you keep <laughs> you keep asking about what do they have to do the trip. It's actually the adults that have to do the trip. But anyway, let's yeah, yeah, let's no, not clearly. fight about yeah, that. Okay. <laughs> um, but the transition has to be simply, I, there's no other way around it. This has to be worked out at a, a very high level in terms of laws and in terms of um, uh, big infrastructure decisions. That's mm. what it looks like. Yeah. I mean, after that, in a way, you don't want to burden a young person with, you know, well, you had one piece of meat this month. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, Fair enough. the whole narrative has to switch to mm. law and to system change. Right. Well, very clear. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask me again. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, well, anyway, um, thank you so much. Um, yeah. Where can we learn more about your initiatives? Um, because you have several initiatives. You also wrote a book, uh, Common Sense, or No Common Sense, rather. Yeah, No Common Sense, man. Right. <laughs> uh, and this is a book you work with in schools. I read it. It's beautiful. It's uh, very well illustrated. It makes the points very clear. Uh, it's very accessible uh, in a non-childish way. Um so where can we find a book? Where can we find more about uh, your initiative, Cut 11%? Yeah. Um, so as a philosophy teacher, mm-hmm. uh, my classroom door is open now. Um, so with that book, No Common Sense, because uh, that's a, it's an attempt to make philosophy explain the current uh, situation with uh, climate change. And the first mm-hmm. chapter is all the science. And that book, in a way, is a bit of a textbook for the mm-hmm. students in my client academy. So we have a climate academy in school, which is hopefully um, in the process of expanding into all the different European schools. Mm. And um, but that's kind of in in a way the the, the climate academy is something just for the students in our school. Um, what's accessible to everybody uh, is is the book No Common Sense. You can get that in Waterstones in Brussels or through Amazon. Um, <laughs> I, I know. Okay. Um, and um, the Cut Eleven Percent has we have a website. Okay. And uh, that's just cut11percent.org. Uh, 
And there you can find your nation. You should look up whatever nation anybody's from. Mm-hmm. You, we have in there what is required for 1.5C and what's required for 2C. And next time you go in the streets, take that number with you. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Super. Okay, well, thank you so much. I think this is a wonderful close. Thank you so much for coming and for sharing your insights. And look forward to continued conversation. Yeah, thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. (laughs) Reflecting on the conversation with Matthew and the question of evolution or revolution, I think Matthew has been very clear on the need for a much, much stronger response. Evolution has simply not delivered. Revolution, in the sense of radically changing the way we consume and produce, seems to be the only logical and truthful conclusion. And from that reasoning emerges the similarity between philosophy, youth, and a sense of telling it like it is, that we adults have become so uncomfortable with. As Matthew says, children are triggered by a gap, a gap between words and actions. It's not only that their future is made extraordinarily difficult by the current and past generation of adults, but the fact that the current generation of adults is doing so little about it. This is what frustrates them and brings them on the streets. So it all starts with coming clean and acknowledge this dishonesty and then be consistent and focus on systemic action to work as fast as we can on radically transforming our society and to give children at least some perspective of a future. And yes, we need to do our bit at the individual level, fly less, eat less meat and recycle, but that can't be our main focus because then we all put it back on the shoulders of the young, whereas we should be supporting them in demanding systemic change, new laws and regulations and cooperation at the international level. But how? How can we get systemic change through legislation to happen fast enough and at a scale that is meaningful? Well, join us next week as the inquiry continues and I interview Bernd Bierfeld from the European Commission and ask him whether the recently adopted European Green Deal is the systemic change that we need so badly. So subscribe to the Inner Green Deal podcast and continue to hear about the struggles, insights, and the inspiration of those on the front line of climate action. Thank you for listening and take care.